Amen. Amen. What a beautiful sight. Could we give one more hand and encourage these guys? God just um, keeps on blessing us with great people and leadership in this church. Keeps on blessing us with new people. Met quite a few of you. This is your first Sunday here at Landmark. Welcome. Hope you have a great experience. We're about to stand and read a scripture in just a moment. And, and we've been studying the scripture from Exodus for a few weeks. It's a place where God actually describes himself. It's actually the most quoted verse in the Bible by the Bible, okay? And so let's all stand out of reverence from God's word. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. And God passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. You may be seated. Well, we get to the part of the passage that's really sort of difficult. Where I actually want to say, what's up? I mean, if you're like me, every Sunday when we've read this passage and we get to this bit about God punishing the children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Anybody else cringe a little bit? Anybody else a little bit uncomfortable? Somebody in first service said, I'm just glad I made it through that for the last six weeks. Because it's a tough passage. What is God saying? Is God all of a sudden gone MMA on us? Now, we got to deal with this because as biblical people, we can't pick and choose what passages we want to look at. It's one of my favorite things about just preaching through a passage is we're hitting it and we got to talk about it. So what's it talking about? Now here's what I want to say to you. I'm confident once you have a better understanding of what that passage is saying, it will give you even more confidence in a beautiful God and the truth of this passage will actually ring through to you. So let's get to the hard part. We're going to go line by line. First thing we saw here highlighted is maintaining love to the thousands. That love there is that loyalty, committed, covenant kind of love. It's God saying, I maintain that love. It never goes and it never runs out. It is given to the thousands. And then the next line, we love this part. He's forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. I mean, he's using almost every word he can to say all the bad stuff in your life, God will forgive. Now, the word to, to forgive here literally means to lift up, to take away, to carry away. If ever a passage in the Old Testament points to what Jesus did for us on the cross, it's this passage. God is a God, and the implication here in these words is God is eager to forgive. He's not chintzy with forgiveness. He wants to forgive you. Reminds me of what Jesus said after he says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. The next verse is this. For God did not send his Son to condemn the world, but what? To save the world. Listen, God gets great joy out of forgiveness and out of saving us. But then we get to the hard part, and it's introduced by this three-letter word, yet. He's saying, I'm about to go in a different direction. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. 
Yes, God is forgiving, but we also must see another part of God's personality. He is a just God. Where there is sin, there must be punishment. He does not just let people off the hook. Now, this is a little bit hard concept for us, guys, because we live in a culture and a time where we don't talk about sin. And we basically don't understand what the Bible says, that all of us are bent towards sin. We're under the curse that happened in the garden. We want to believe in America today that everybody's good. And we say that. You know, at heart, everybody's good. That's not what the Bible teaches. And we want to believe if we had the right politics or if we had the right education or some fantastic new app might come out, we could solve all of our problems. The truth is only God can sin, can handle our sin problem. And we got to come grips with it. Do not believe any man who says they're a Christian who says, I've never asked for forgiveness because we have all sinned. And if we're not careful, instead of taking responsibility, we try to blame everybody else. Now you say, boy, this is the bad part, buddy, this passage, not, not too happy about this justice part. And quite frankly, I used to feel the same way. I can remember growing up in church, and old brother gets up to lead the prayer, and he says, our father, we thank thee that thou art a just God. And I would sit there and think, oh, <laughs> that's not what I thank him for. I, I, I thank him that he's a forgiving God. The more I study this, the more I think, my friends, we need to thank him that he's a forgiving God, but we also need to thank him that he's a just God. Because him being a just God means he's against evil. And being a just God means that there will be a day when all evil is destroyed. Think about this. There will be a day when there will be no abuse in any relationships. There will be a day when cruel dictators don't commit genocide. There will be a day when there are no more school shootings. Amen? There will be a day when there's no more breakdown in the family and all that ensues after that. There will be a day when the poor are no longer exploited and the unborn are no longer killed. Who wants to live in that day? Raise your hand. Man, I want to live in that day. And let me say this, guys. If you're a follower of God, of Jesus Christ, one day we will live in a restored earth where evil will be done away with. You see, listen to me. The hope of the gospel is not that one day a Holocaust victim and Hitler will spend eternity together. The hope of the gospel is not that the slave trader and the slave will be together forever, or the abuser and the abused wife will have to spend eternity together. That's not the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is that there will be one day when there are no Hitlers, no slave traders, no people who abuse other people. That's the hope of the gospel. Right now, it hadn't happened. Oh, we see the justice of God. We'll talk about some ways how God even met, mets out gospel um, justice right now. But one day, the prophet Amos promises his justice will roll like a river. Guys, because God is forgiving, I don't have to cower in fear. But because God is just, I can look forward to a day when all the evil is banished. My friends, think about the evil that you and I see on the TV every day. 
Man, if, if, if you read the news online or you read an old-fashioned newspaper, it's just one evil thing after another. Here's the good news. Here's why we can celebrate the justice of God. One day it will be over. Now that brings us to the next line that really gives us fits. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents. Now on surface, guys, that seems Actually, to me, that seems very unjust. So we got a big question mark here. What in the world does this mean about God? You know, if grandma cheats on her taxes, does that mean grandson is punished? Well, first of all, I want to show you a couple passages where God completely contradicts the surface reading of what we've just read. In fact, Moses, who wrote this, wrote something completely different in Deuteronomy 24, 16. Listen to this. Parents are not to put their children, not to, not to put to death for their children. Let me start all over, guys. Would you pray for me right now? All right. For all have sinned. Okay. Parents are not to put to death, or not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. That's what I thought. And then Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel puts it this way. The one who sins is the one who would die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. That sounds fair. The parent pays for their own sin. The child pays for their sin. So how in the world do we make sense of what is written back here in Exodus? Now, first of all, I think there are some different translations that may help us. Older translations do not say the children and grandchildren are punished. It says that God will visit the iniquity. Here's what I'm thinking. What he's saying is the the repercussions of sin will last for generations. In fact, I love the New Living Translation. And I really like its translation of this passage. Here's what it says. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. Now that's making sense to me. We've all seen this. Somebody sins, the entire family's affected. Especially in a day, think about when this was written. Three and four generations of families would live under the same roof. You didn't grow up and go establish your own household. Everybody was there together. And the sins affected everyone. There are, here's what I would say that God is telling us about himself. He allows the consequences of sin to play out in our life. So let's try to get to some meaning there. What are some layers of meaning of the sin going to the third and fourth generation. I want to give you some things that help me. Number one, the parent's sin has consequences for the child. Someone's sin affects someone else. Let me give you a biblical example, then a couple examples that you and I can relate to. Back in the book of Numbers, God's people have finally got to the promised land. They've escaped terrible cruelty and abuse and slavery in Egypt. They've gotten right to the land of milk and honey. They send out the spies. Ten spies say there are too many giants. Two say we ought to go in. The people rebel and say, let's not go in. They say something so absurd. You're not going to believe they say this. Moses, would you just please take us back to Egypt? Can you believe that? 
You really want to go back to Egypt? And when God hears this, I'm telling you, the Bible says God is slow to anger. He's at the end of his rope. And God gets very angry. And he says to Moses, I've told you this before. I'm going to tell you again. Let's just get rid of these guys and start all over. And Moses says, oh, God, please don't do that because all the people around here are going to think bad of you. The one thing I hope you've learned in this series about God is that God is not monolithic. God, God is responding to people. God has not put life in concrete and it just never changes no matter what happens. God responded, we saw weeks ago to Moses before when he said the same thing. And God responds here and says, okay, Moses, I'm not going to destroy them. In fact, I'll do better than that. Because you pleaded, I'm going to forgive them. Now listen to what it says in Numbers 14. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. You're not going to like the nevertheless, okay? Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, not one of those who saw my glory and the signs I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times, not one of them will ever see the land. I promised on oath to their ancestors, not one of them has treated me with contempt will ever see it. God says, okay, I'm willing to forgive but there are consequences of what these dudes have done. Because they've been so faithless and so rebellious, despite the fact seeing so many miracles, I'm going to let them live, but they're not going into the promised land. So God allows a whole generation to die out in the wilderness. But catch what? Guess what? Their children are affected. Look at Numbers 14, 33. Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years. Here we go. Suffering... For your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. What's God saying? There are consequences to sin. The parents are punished to not go in the promised land, and their children end up bearing the consequences of wandering until they get to go in. Now, that sounds pretty tough to us, guys, but it actually rings very true when you look at life. Okay, let's just make up a far-fetched one. Mom and dad decide to start a meth lab. You know what I'm saying? It's Breaking Bad at Landmark, all right? I mean, they, they start a, a meth lab, and in the long run, they don't get by with it. Your parents don't get by with it. They're arrested, and they're put in jail. Justice. But who's going to bear the worst of that? The children who had nothing to do with it. They may have to go live with another family. They may be passed around from family to family to family. Their lives are going to be totally turned up in a bad way, raw, upside down. Because the sins of the parent affects even generations. Now, one that we're probably more familiar with, some of you have probably even experienced this, and I'm not... I'm not saying this to add guilt to anybody in here because honestly what I'm about to say, if you've been through this, you understand it better than I do. If mom and dad get a divorce, who suffers the consequences? It's the children and the grandchildren for that matter. Now we have a PR campaign in America that says divorce is a danger-free zone. Sometimes the best thing is for you to get a divorce because, you know, your children deserve to grow up in a home where both parents love each other. Because I'm not talking about extremes. There, there are times when abuse and infidelity where divorce ends up, despite all of your efforts, the only 
the only alternative. But I'm talking about this craziness in our culture today where we say, you know what? I just don't love my spouse anymore. I don't love him anymore. And I know, it's something God never said, but we say, I know God wants me to be happy. And so for me to be happy, i got to get out of this marriage. Listen to me. There's nothing you could do that would be worse for your children. We all know it's been studied. The amount of crime, the amount of insecurity, the amount of trust issues, the messiness of finances, the fear of commitment, and something as simple as where do you spend the holidays? All gets messed up. That's another example, guys, of the parent's sin. And again, those of you who've experienced this, you could preach this better than me because it happens. And so the first meaning I see of this passage is that when the parents sin, there are consequences that affect the children. And then number two, I think we also see this. Sins tend to repeat in families. I think that may be what God's talking about. It it keeps on being passed. How many times have we seen the abused become the abuser? We would think someone who's abused that would be the last thing they do. But we know a higher percentage of people abused will become abusers than those who have not. The sins of the parents continue. The alcoholic dad creates the alcoholic son who creates the alcoholic grandson. We often talk about this, and I think it's a biblical truth, of generational sins. I like to make fun of Oprah Winfrey, but I do like a show I saw her do years ago where she was talking to an abuse victim. And in the show, they traced the family abuse back for five generations. Guys, it happens. And I think that's what God's warning us about. You think it's okay for me just to give myself to this kind of sin, just to do this? Listen, you know what? It's bad enough what it's going to do to you. But it's even worse that what you do is going to affect future generations. Now, we see this all through the Bible. I mean, David, you know, one day David goes out, you know, on his roof. He looks across. He sees a beautiful woman. He lusts. He calls her. He sleeps with her. He sets up, you know, her husband in the long run to be killed. It's an awful story. And here David is the man after God's own heart. And yet, if you trace his family history... Amnon, his son, sees a beautiful woman, lust, brings her to himself, and it's a disaster. Absalom and Amnon end up being murderers just like their daddy. Listen, my friends, there are generational curses that are brought upon families. Some of you I respect and admire because as you're hearing this, you're thinking, man, this, this went on in my family a long time. And you're the one finally being gutsy enough to go, enough is enough. We're not going to let this keep on. God will give you that power. Number three, this is an important point. God's goal is to rid us of sin. Sometimes bad things happen to a person and even persons beyond that because God is trying to clean sin out of our life. I mean, uh, the book of Hebrews says quite a bit about God. It's a father. And he talks about God being a a great father, and he says this, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18, excuse me, I'm in the wrong place here. He says, those God loves, he disciplines, all right? The Lord disciplines people he loves. 
he chastens everyone who's his son. Now, he admits this. Listen to verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Now, sometimes God does bring pain on those generations. Later on, however, it produces the harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. In other words, God, sometimes when there's sin in our life, God allows trials. Sometimes God may even cause trials because he wants us to finally get sick and tired of living that way enough that we will turn to him. So God's goal is not just to rid you of your sin and your children, your grandchildren, but in the long run to rid the whole world of sin. And then here's the really good news, I think, back from our passage in Exodus. God's mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, this may be surprising to you, and I'm going to have to get a little technical just for a second. But in the original Hebrew here, the word generation is not found. We've added that in the English translation to make it more understandable. But we may be missing something here. Because Exodus 34 has got a poetic rhythm. And the two parts of this passage that have this rhythm to it are are two great contrasts. Maintaining love to thousands. What matches it is punishing to the third and fourth. Again, the word generation is not there. What God may be saying here is, I'm telling you, man, his mercy and grace go to thousands. The punishment goes to third or fourth. In other words, if you were to take a scale, now I'm not talking about the scale you weighed on that upset you before, before you came to church this morning because you ate too much pizza last night, all right? I'm not talking about that kind of scale. Y'all don't even want to laugh about that. I'm not talking about that kind of scale. I'm talking about the kind of justice scale you would see on a Supreme Court building where you have the two sides of justice, you know. You got mercy and you have grace. I think this is what God is saying about himself. His scales are not even. His grace and mercy is much greater than his justice. In fact, God will say through James, the brother of Jesus, mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, how does God do this? Because all through the Old Testament, guys, you see exactly what we've seen in this passage. There's this tension between this God of love and forgiveness, and on the other hand, a God who punishes, and a God who's just. How is that finally resolved Let me give you a couple passages, and we're going to celebrate this in communion. John chapter 1, 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, we read that, and we think, what does that mean? Here's what it means. In the Old Testament, if you had sinned, which everybody had, you are required to come to the temple. And you might bring a lamb is a blood sacrifice. And so you would come to the temple, you'd bring your lamb, you would place your hand on the lamb as if transferring your sin to the lamb. While you're doing that, the priest, this is not a pretty picture, but sin's not a pretty picture, the priest would slit the lamb's neck and throw him on the altar as a burnt offering. It was a way of saying your sins have been transferred away from you. Jesus is the ultimate lamb of God. 
all of our sins have been placed on him. And he has taken the punishment for our sins. You see, in the Old Testament, you sin, the lamb dies. For all of us in eternity, you sin, and Jesus died. Listen to this passage from Romans chapter 3. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Same kind of language. Through the shedding of blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, he had left their sins beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Did you catch those two terms? Because of the cross, God is true. He is just. Sin has not gone without punishment. But he also is the justifier. Because the hand was put on Jesus, the sin was put on Jesus, we stand justified. And my friends, as we take communion this morning, that's what we're about to celebrate. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, And you're seeking, you're not perfect because we all sin, but you're seeking to follow him. I'm not talking about someone in rebellious sin right now. I'm talking about you're seeking to follow Jesus. Then in this moment, we are reminded that our sins were put on the body of Jesus. And his blood paid the ultimate price so that we are sin free in God's eyes. So that's why we call communion not a sad time, but a time of celebration. Because finally, the love and mercy and the justice of God have come together on the cross and been reconciled so you and I can be in a right relationship with God. Please think about that over the next few moments and thank God. Lord, we come today so thankful that you are a loving and merciful God. But also, Lord, we must admit today that we are thankful that you're a just God, that you hate evil, that you hate abuse, that one day you'll take it all away. But right now, Lord, we have to confess that we're a mixture. And so we need you to remind us during this time that we are forgiven by the Lamb of God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Oh, uh, In light of what we're talking about today, I love that God is running after, he's running after me. One way he does it is even by disciplining us in our sinful life. And so as we close today, I want to get really practical just for a few moments. Because if this passage should teach us anything, it should teach us that we need to get serious about sin. Too many Christians today have developed a flippant attitude towards sin. You know, I mean, it's not that big a deal. I mean, grace will cover it. I mean, who cares? I just go ahead and do what I want to do. My friends, here's, here's the point I get from this lesson. This is the, the best way I can sum this up. God is forgiving. Sin is not. Say that with me out loud. God is forgiving. Sin is not. Sins carry their own punishment within them. Satan would like you to think, man, I just get off scot-free, you know. I can sin this way. My friends, if this passage says anything to us, there are consequences. There are, are repercussions. For instance, and I hate to even give this example, but God forbid that I would walk out of here and 
go be unfaithful to my wife and have an affair. Now this I believe. I believe I could easily be forgiven by God. God's, God's forgiving is to all generations. But at best, I'd have a long time to win back the trust of my wife and children. At worst, I would lose them. And it'd take me decades to try to get back in that relationship. I would immediately lose my job. My life would be turned upside down. There would be consequences to what I'd done despite the fact God would readily forgive. And if you look at any sin, my friends, there is a punishment inherent in the sin. If you're lying and deceiving and covering up things in your life, it's like a stack of cards. The Bible says clearly your sins will find you out. There will be a day, some of you have experienced this, where you're exposed. I mean, some of us have watched way too much of the Murdochs over the last few weeks, right? I mean, this family on the outside looks like everything is perfect, but when it's all exposed, it's awful. And if you live your life based on lies, that's what's going to happen. Guys, pornography is way too easy and way too prevalent in our culture but within itself, it, it, it hurts you. It, it, it makes you look at bodies and people as objects to be lusted after and not really as people. It makes it more difficult to be intimate with people you do love. You'll pay a price for that. If you gossip over and over again, in the long run, people will not want to share with you, will not want to be around you, and in the long run, you will be bitter and alone. If you give yourself to drunkenness, at a minimum, it's going to destroy your body. More than likely, it's going to destroy the relationships around you. If you're full of unforgiveness, and maybe you've really been done wrong, and you've got this bitterness toward this person, and it feels right, but the truth is you're not hurting that person, but that bitterness is overtaking your life. And every sin that we could name carries with it the consequences. Listen to me, friends. God is forgiving. Sin is not. That's why this is the thing as Christians, guys, we can't just play with it and think, oh, man, you know, I know God's going to forgive me the graces. You may destroy a lot of things in the middle of that and still end up being okay with God. Many of us have experienced this already. I'm not telling you anything new. And so my challenge today is not that you can go back today and, and undo all the sins and consequences of your life. None of us can. But certainly today, as we run into this passage that we'd probably rather skip, as we run this passage, it should wake us up about the sin in our life. It should give us an attitude that we want to be holy and pleasing to God and that we're going to lean on the Spirit to change us. And guys, even a step further, if we deliberately keep on sinning, we risk the hand of God being against us. The book of Hebrews is written to a bunch of young Christians that are beginning to, to fall away from God and go back into their old lives of sin. Listen to what the writer says. If we deliberately keep on sending after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. My friend, if you rebelliously shake your 
fist in God's face and say, I know what you said, but I just don't care what you said. I'm doing what I want to. You are going down a dangerous path. In the long run, you're going to face a God of justice. Now, guys, there's so many motivations for us to stay away from sin. One is just the consequences of what it does to us, what it could do to our relationship with God, but also what it could do to the people we love. I mean, what what I'm learning from this passage is I want my life to be carried on with consequences to my children and my grandchildren to their children. Because there's so much motivation for us to get our lives right with God. We say, buddy, how do I get my life right with God? I've got some sin in my life that's been there way too long. Let me tell you three things the Bible says that you need to do. First of all, you need to repent. That's an old Bible word that simply means you've got to change your mind about this sin. You've got to stop playing with it. You've got to stop walking in that direction and walk back toward God. Repent. And you can repent right here on the spot today. Second, the Bible says you need to confess it, first of all, to God. But the Bible even talks about us confessing our sins to one another so that we may be healed. There's something about God forgiving you, but there's something about looking someone in the eyes that loves you and saying, this is what's going on in my life, and them forgiving you and them loving you through it. The Bible says that's healing. We're uncomfortable with this concept, friend, but if you want to leave this place healed, one of the best things you could do is come before this church, this loving church, and say, man, i got something going on in my life. I need to confess it. And then number three, we need to pray about it. We need to call upon the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit, because through God, not our own power, but through God, the same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead will change your life. If, you, if what I'm saying to you today, and I, I hear Christian people go, oh, that's so radical, that's so crazy. Confess your sins to one another. I'd never, listen, Jesus said in his teaching, if you're caught in a sin, do something radical. If it's your hand that's messing you up, cut it off. If your eye that's messing you up, pluck it out. Now, I don't think Jesus is literally saying, go, you know, mess your body up. But what I think he is absolutely saying is if you are caught and trapped in a sin, you need to do radical surgery. And if you believe the verses we looked at today, you'll want to. And you can come to God, and he's chasing after you. The reason you may be here today for this very challenging sermon is because God knew that you needed to hear this. He wants, as we sang earlier in this service, he wants to rescue you out of here. My friends, there's nothing beautiful. There's nothing good about the sin in your life. It's doing nothing but destruction to you and the people around you. What is beautiful is to experience the forgiveness of God. If we can help you with that, don't hesitate to come to this front row right now while we stand together and sing.